for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Titus chapter 3. Today we're going to conclude our series that we've been in the last several uh, weeks, actually a couple months, uh, entitled The Church, a study of the book of Titus. We've been looking at leadership, discipleship, and mission. And today we're looking at our second uh, uh, sermon on the idea of mission and what God is doing in His church. I want to begin by reading uh, Titus chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15, and then we'll continue. Paul writes, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, And not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. A number of years ago, many years ago actually, um, there were a group of people that lived on a coastline that was a very dangerous place. The rocks and the way the coastline was formed and shaped and the way the winds and the storms would blow against them would cause many ships to crash and they would watch these ships in the midst of storms crash and and even break into many pieces and the helpless people in the sea that would, would drown because there was no one there to help them. And so a group of people got together and said, we need to do something about this. And so they formed a life saving club. And on the edge of the coastline where they lived, they built a little hut so that as ships would wreck, they would send teams out to rescue the people and bring them into these huts. Well, the first few times that that the wrecks occurred, there was success with the rescues. And they began to see people who would have otherwise drowned in the seas be rescued and brought into the huts. And so this began to gain some momentum and more people wanted to join the mission because of the success that they were having. And and very quickly they realized that the hut that they had built wasn't sufficient for the rescue mission that they were serving. And so someone advised, you know, we should build or we should uh, improve the hut. I mean, it just seems so uh, 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 unequipped. to do what we feel like we're supposed to be doing. And so they improved the hut, made it a little bigger, made it a little nicer so they could use it a little more often. And in order to get through this, they began to uh, uh, improve it. But not only would they serve for rescue missions, but the people just began to gather at the hut at different times, even when storms weren't blowing, because, well, it it had just become a fun place to be with other people. And so they would gather at the hut and and celebrate the rescues that they had done and talk about those things. And, 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 And in time, as they gathered more and more, it became less and less about the rescue and more and more 
just about the gathering at the hut. And really the huts had become so nice that when they would have gatherings and storms would blow in and teams would try to go out and rescue, before they would let the people come into the hut, they would tell them, you know, why don't you let them get cleaned up a little bit before they come into the hut so, you know, so they don't mess the hut up. This continued on and grew worse and worse. It seemed like the hut was for something completely different than a rescue. And so a small group of people at one of the gatherings stood up one night and said, we built this hut to be a rescue mission, a place of life-saving rescue. But it's really become something completely different. And all the people looked around at one another and said, if you don't like what we're doing here, why don't you go build another one? And that's what they did. They moved a little further down the coastline and they built another hut. Wasn't much to it at all. It's pretty raggly actually. But it's what they could afford at the time and so they built the hut. And in building the hut, they committed themselves again to the purity of the mission at which they all began. And that was to rescue people who were being blown in and found themselves in desperate need. But not too long into that, some of the people that were part of that rescue mission said, you know, we, we need some more amenities in our hut. It just doesn't seem to serve us. We need to improve the hut. So they began to improve the hut. And I think you know where this part of the story goes again. In time, the same thing happened to that one that happened to the first one. And so a small group of people in that one said, hey, we've lost our mission. And the others looked at him at one of their gatherings and said, if you don't like what we're doing, why don't you start your own? And that's what they did. They went down and started their own. If you travel the eastern seacoast today, you'll find yacht clubs and mariner clubs and seaworthy clubs all up and down the coastline. It caused me when I heard this story just to pause with a soberness about who we are and what we are becoming as the church. And I wanted to cause you today to pause and give sober consideration to what you, Christian, are becoming. As a follower of Christ, and together with other people as the church. You see, as long as a Christian remains on the earth, mission that multiplies disciples for increasing glory unto God remains our principal focus. And today, I want us to take a moment to focus and summarize this series of the church as we've studied through the book of Titus. And I want us to kind of bring some things together. So you're going to hear me repeat some things that you've heard me say. And for emphasis, I'm even going to repeat some things in the sermon today that I say earlier and repeat later. So man, it's just going to be like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I am. (laughs) Okay? When we begin reading in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, it's a very typical conclusion to Paul's letter. He's he's giving concluding remarks and he's giving direction to Titus as he does to the people that he's writing to and and even some personal direction for him and and some missional direction, if you will. We, We see this list of names that kind of jumps out. Artemis is one of the first, and and this is the only reference to Artemis that's mentioned in the New Testament, right? So so it makes you think, well, who was this Artemis character? I mean, 
uh, he only gets one reference in the New Testament, doesn't really say anything about him, right? He is in the Bible, though. I would just remind us of that, right? His name did make it. <laughs> but we don't know anything more about him. And then Tychicus. Tychicus is mentioned again in Acts 20 in verse 4. He was from Asia, and we know that Paul directs him to join as a representative of the church that accompanied Paul with uh, the gift for the poor Christians that was being sent back to Jerusalem and those who were experiencing so much persecution and suffering in that day. And so much of Paul's labors were in the churches that he was founding. He was raising funds to send back to Jerusalem to help those who were in such dire need in that church. Zenos is another one, and, and, and he was a lawyer that traveled with Paul's cohorts, and this as well is the only mention of him. Apollos is another name that is mentioned here, and he's probably the best known on the list, for we know that Apollos was a very eloquent speaker, but he needed some help with the content of what he was saying, and so Priscilla and Aquila took him in and fed him a meal one day and then, and then rebuked him a little bit for his incorrect theology, but then corrected him and trained him in his theology so it would strengthen him. And we know that he was with Paul when he wrote 1 Corinthians, and some even proposed that he potentially was the author of the book of Hebrews. A significant individual there. You see, here's what I want to say about this. Paul is modeling what he's been teaching in the book of Titus. He is modeling a discipleship to develop leaders that would equip and encourage and empower the church to devote themselves to good works. That's the point. He's bringing a summary to this book of everything that he's talked about. And here's the really the big idea that I want you to grab hold of today and I hope kind of brings a cumulative summary to our study in the book of Titus. But I simply want you to walk away today knowing this, that the gospel grows grace-fueled devotion through good works for godly living in a godless age. That the gospel grows grace-fueled devotion through good works for godly living in a godless age. That was kind of the big idea that we were uh, trajectorying towards, traje trajectorying towards. I really wanted to use that word, I just couldn't pronounce it. We were moving that direction. How about that? And so this godly living in a godly age, but Paul has instructed Titus and he instructs us today that this is what the gospel grows. It's grace-fueled devotion that comes through good works in this life of godliness in a godly age. I, I, I want you to see that Christians grow and mature. We, we talked about we not only grow, but we grow up. That's maturity, right? We grow and we grow up as we learn to devote ourselves to good works. Let me give you three important reminders that come to us through this study as we uh, uh, aim towards this uh, goal for today. The first reminder I give you would be a biblical teaching. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 1 of the book of Titus, here's what he says, that that, that when you see this vision that God has, in other words, God's plan for the Christian life is that we would be ready for every good work. So good works and our devotion to them, it's the plan of God for our lives as His children. 
And this is what the scriptures teach us. When we move a little further in chapter 8 and we come to verse, or excuse me, in chapter 3 and we come to verse 8, we see that grace is at work in the Christian life and that leads to deeper devotion in service. Remember in chapter 3 we saw that grace appeared. And when grace appeared, first of all in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but then in verses 4 through 7 we saw where grace appeared in personal salvation when we were saved. So grace appeared in this world, the mission of God through Jesus Christ has come, but also in salvation for the grace of God has come into us and we are no longer what we once were. And what does it say in verse 8? He says, this saying is trustworthy. That's a reference to the gospel in verses 4 through 7. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we see that grace that is at work in a Christian's life leads them to a deeper devotion to good works or to serving. And then in verse 14, we come where this list of leaders are taking place and surrounding and serving with Paul. And and we see that leaders are to cultivate this grace through the gospel for the people of God to learn devotion in their service, in their good works. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and, and not be unfruitful. Here's the first reminder I want to give you today. Every Christian's personal growth and maturity depends upon serving God's mission to grow deeper devotion. Every Christian's personal growth and maturity depends upon serving God's mission to grow deeper devotion. I've said this probably a hundred different ways in sermons, but you will never grow and mature if you will not serve just will never happen you'll feel good about your christian life often and you won't understand why you don't feel better about it when you don't feel good about it but you won't grow and mature there's a big problem that we have though and here's that big problem it's cultural practices not just cultural practices in terms of the world which I would include that as well but even cultural practices in the church today of what we're so avid about you see far too often we are enamored with a knowledge about and a practice of raising awareness but we're abysmally absent in actually serving we want to learn and we want to make others aware But there's no dirt under our own fingernails in serving. See, you don't get points for knowledge or awareness. God will not say to you, Christian, good awareness, thou faithful servant. That's not what the scripture teaches us. Christian serving puts dirt under your fingernails while it grows grace in your heart. That's what it's all about. You see, Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself in godliness for it holds values for this life and the life to come. Here's the second reminder I want to put before you today to confront this great problem we have in our day and time. That training in godliness requires the labor of gospel mission to grow, to mold, and to shape a heart of devotion. Training in godliness requires the labor of mission to grow, to mold, and to shape a heart 
of devotion. And then finally, I want to point out to you the impact of gospel-sourced grace. Here's what grace does that we've already seen. It comes to us and it saves us. Grace trains us and grace empowers us for godly living. We've seen all of these principles and concepts in this study in the book of Titus. You see, true gospel conversion always produces a life distinguished by grace in Christ-like character, in Christ-like compassion, and in Christ-like conduct. It is very difficult to overstate the value of service to do good works with your life. It's just very difficult. Now, it is possible for us to think that good works are what save us. But we've not been running at good works in that way. We've not been using good works to run towards salvation. We've been talking about our salvation that leads us to good works. So don't get those two confused. But devotion to do good works, it it focuses all of our life with a single purpose. And when we focus on doing good, devotion grows. and, And doing evil or being divisive, it becomes increasingly difficult. So the third reminder I want to give you today is that grace grows devotion through good works in gospel labors for godly living. I want you to keep these reminders of of kind of as a framework for all that we've talked about in this study as we press in to bring it to a culmination today. So with these lessons in our minds, let's turn our attention, attention to learn to devote ourselves for godly living in a godless age. And I hope my tongue cooperates. I'm having trouble with it this morning. The gospel, friends, grows grace-fueled devotion through good works for godly living in a godless age. I want to give you four perspectives to train for your godly living in a godless age today. The first perspective I want to offer to you is this. Godly living is a process of learning. I've also talked about this already in this series, but I think it's so important for you to understand and not forget that godly living is a process of learning. What does Paul say to Titus? And let our people learn. Now, unless you're confused about your grammar, and I'm no grammar teacher and I won't pretend to teach you, but I have read enough to know this. This is as much a command as an imperative. Let our people learn. It's a process of growing. Godly living is a process of learning. Titus 2 and 3 show us that that the grace that comes from God, it changes us. We are not who we were even though we may not be all that we know we need to be or that we will be. You see, Christians are in a process of maturing in godly living as we engage in the process of learning. Now, learning describes for you and I, for every individual who claims the name of Christ, a, an ongoing participation in this process. Our successes and our failures must be accepted as a regular part of training. And while neither should be considered ultimate. In other words, when you experience momentary good in what you would consider your growth and maturity in your Christian life, you should celebrate that as the evidence of God's grace revealed in your life. And it should bring encouragement to you, but not encouragement that then causes you to center your trust and your confidence in self, but rather encouragement that causes you to anchor your trust and your hope in God's grace. 
And isn't that the way it happens so often? We experience any measure of success and we go, hey, I didn't do so bad. You knew it wasn't you. But you'll take that. You're good with it, right? That's what we can't do. But we do another equally condemning practice as well. We'll take our momentary failures. Even though we know we're not perfect, we'll be surprised by them, right? I don't know how I did that. I mean, and we can say these like in two sentences, fully express this. Man, it is all by God's grace. I have no idea why that thought crossed my mind. You know, I mean, we, we, will, we will condemn ourselves with both. And so in our momentary failures, we should never overlook them, but neither Neither should it be allowed to cast an ultimate shadow of condemnation over us. You see, here's what Satan does. Satan uses success to bolster our trust in me, and he uses our failures to destroy us. Here's what it sounds like in you. You know, you're not that bad of a person. You deserve better. And then the justification just begins to roll. You don't need much help. Just a little nudge, and you're rolling. And you're rolling down the me lane, right? And you're talking about, yeah, you know, he's right. I do deserve better. Life shouldn't be so hard. I should have a few more accessories in my life. I should have a few more comforts. In my, I mean, look at everybody else. I'm no worse than they are. And, and so it begins to go. And as soon as we come to a point where conviction pricks our heart and we go, Oh my goodness, that's sinful. Satan goes, I know. I don't know where you got the idea, but condemn on you for that. You're like... You're the one that put, you know. And that's how, that's how Satan works. For he is the great accuser that accuses us of being better than we are and accuses us, accuses us into condemnation for what we've done. But see, God uses our successes and our failures both to redeem us for our good. So whether successes and failures destroy us or whether they redeem us will be determined by whether we trust in ourself or in our Savior, Jesus. This is an ongoing process which demands your participation, Christian. You see, this process uh, demands a, a context. And, and let me just tell you, I'll give you a hint into this context. This context is what we call discipleship. And in this context, there should be three right elements that are included. We've already seen this, so again, I'm rehashing a sermon to you here. But it should be the context uh, with three right elements of right doctrine, right people, and right conversations. First of all, we saw that qualified leaders guard sound doctrine by preaching, by teaching, by counseling, and by training and ultimately by shepherding people to apply that right doctrine. That's what chapter 1 in the book of Titus is all about. And when we get to chapter 2, we see that the second right element is that multi-generational relationships must be pursued by you, by each individual. We should pursue the others in order to get to know Uh, them and so that they can know you so that you not them you will trust them when they rebuke you when they encourage you and when they point you to Jesus and we've already seen that the right people are critical for this 
Because the wrong people won't say the right things that we need to hear. And if we go looking for the right things, we'll determine that based on what we want to hear and not what the gospel would be saying to us or what God would want to say to us. And so the right people are intentionally engaged. They don't just appear from nowhere. That's discipleship. That's the church. That's the church. That's, listen, that's not what we do. Predominantly, it's who we are. It's who we are. And if you don't have these kinds of relationships, friends, you've got to ask yourself, am I being who I was created and redeemed to be? Third, there's a right element of called people in the process of learn must be committed to the right conversations about real life and how the gospel empowers us to walk in godly truth and wisdom. I wonder how many people got up today, came to Life Point with a mask on. You know, that proverbial mask makes you look better than you know you really are, so you don't have to mess with other people. Listen, we blame the church for this all the time. And it is the church's fault to the extent that you are the church. Yeah, I just pointed that finger at you. Because if you don't want people wearing masks, you've got to take yours off first. If you want people to be vulnerable with you, you've got to be a safe person to be vulnerable with. And the only way you can be that is to become that. And be willing to be first. So you can show other people that you'll be that for them. Listen, friends, I, I know the church has perpetrated all kinds of evil in our days and times in history. And man, we get the brunt of all kind of blame today. That church is full of hypocrites. We are. We're, we're not what we claim, and we know it. Right? But listen, friends, the gospel's never going to do you any good until you get real with who you are because of what God says. And then good is all that God will have for you, regardless of what comes to you. That's what Paul's talking about. The church forms a culture, a context of discipleship for people to, hear me, learn. It's a process of participation for people to learn to live godly. Christian, you need to remember that learning to live godly for your life, it's a process of successes and of failures. It's a process of God's grace changing you from within into God's image. That's the first perspective you must hold as a Christian, as the church, for the church. The second perspective that I would offer for you today is that godly living grows devotion through good works. Godly living grows devotion through good works. What does he say in verse 12? And let our people learn what? To devote themselves to good works. To devote themselves to good works. Now last, uh, last week, one of the points of my sermon was talking about devoting oneself to good works. In other words, I talked about God's vision for your life. And part of that vision being what? That you were devoted to good works. And that's what Paul said in the first verse of chapter 3. 
But in this verse, there is a shift, or excuse me, in this chapter, there is a shift of focus that's given when he repeats this. For verse 1 and verse 8 emphasizes the doing aspect of serving. But verse 14 emphasizes the value of good works in order to grow devotion for God in your heart and in your life. You see, the process of learning grows devotion to God through good deeds, good works. That word devote is an interesting word and gives us our emphasis for this perspective. It's a word that means to lead or to manage or to rule over. And it gives us insight for how good works demonstrate what we're worshiping in our heart and in our life. In other words, what's leading us. How we're managing our life towards something and, and what it is that, that is ruling over us. Now, let me remind you this. God's grace got you into this. Remember that? Remember, it appeared, we changed, and we began to serve. And because it got us into this, God's grace is transforming us by exposing false idols, applying the gospel through repentance, and rooting grace deeper in our lives in order to grow new and greater devotions. You see, the more and the deeper that grace replaces false idols, that grace replaces worldly hopes, that grace replaces ungodly priorities, and that grace replaces faithless anxieties in our life, the more we will devote ourselves to loving God by serving. Learning to devote oneself to good works exposes false idols and it plants gospel roots in order to grow grace-fueled devotion to serve and to glorify God. You see, many never serve long enough and many never serve significantly enough to learn this devotion and this process of learning devotion. I'm speaking probably... Statistically, I'm, speak, I'm speaking to the majority of the room right now because statistically and historically, they've told us that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church. And if that's true, we also know that probably a lesser percentage is do, uh, of the people is doing a greater percentage of the work even beyond the church because that's harder work. But friends, I just want to encourage you today. My point is not to condemn you because you're not on one of our servant teams. Though we will have a sign up immediately following at the kiosk. We'll prick your finger. We'll take blood. And we'll track you. Put a little chip right there where we pricked your finger. And we'll know. No, we don't prick fingers. I don't ever believe anyone ought to have their finger pricked. But that's a whole other story. And me and needles and blades... So, listen friends, if you serve until it becomes inconvenient, until it becomes painful, or until it becomes hard and then you quit, then you never discover what is ruling, what is leading, and what is managing your life. And you'll never discover what you're most devoted to. You've served enough, maybe. To be inconvenienced and burdened. But then you stopped when grace was about to make a faith-driven shift. I can't tell you how many times people go, Pastor, my life has gotten so crazy. I just had to cut something out. The only thing I could stop doing was this work in the church. That's the first way 
to miss a grace-driven transformation in your heart and in your life. I understand in the big scope of things, sometimes the service that you're doing in the church feels so inconsiderable. Man, all I do is greet people. Do you realize that the first five minutes somebody's on a campus of a church like this will determine whether they're ever going to come back and the degree to which they'll connect at deeper levels? I don't have time for that sermon, but that's a whole series in and of itself. I've told you, I don't care how inconsiderable you feel like your task is when you're gathered with the body. If it's not important, we're committed to not do it. And sometimes things that are important at one time need to be killed and done away with because they're no longer important for us. They have a shelf life, so to speak. And we need to be committed to get rid of those things too. But friends, if we're doing it, it's because it's important. And it may not bring home the bacon for you in your home. But it might introduce someone to the grace of God. That's all I'm saying. I know it's hard to get up and get to church, especially after you've had a full extra hour of sleep. Right? Or lost one. And you know what I wish? I wish the ending of daylight savings time would undo everything the beginning does. Man, people are foul when they lose an hour of sleep, but they don't get measurably improved when they gain it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't happen. So we're continually getting worse as long as daylight savings time is in effect. I'm just arguing that point. That's a total rabbit trail. When serving gets hard, it simply means we're getting to where it matters most in our life. And we're grace. Hear me. Where grace can make its biggest appearance in us. Serving felt like death at one point to Paul. Let me read something to you. Let me tell you what serving the church felt like to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. See, he's practicing awareness, right? Right here. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You hear that? We thought we were going to die, but then we remembered it doesn't matter. Our God raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Friends, serving is hard because that's the way God intended it. Serving is hard because our hearts are hard. That's why serving is so hard. Difficulty that arises from serving God always identifies the end of self and the source of our trust in order to help us root our faith more deeply in God's grace. Learning to devote to God's mission picks a fight with competing devotions in your heart. That's what you're doing. You're throwing the gloves off and saying, it is on. 
You're, you're picking a fight with the things that you've devoted yourself to. You're picking a fight with the things that are managing your heart. You're picking a fight with the false idols and the false hopes and the false promises that are leading you down the path you call life today. And the more we devote ourselves to God's mission, the more our competing vo- devotions will war against us internally. And when we quit or we walk away because serving gets hard, grace never gets planted deeper than our convenience allows. And devotion remains shallow in our feelings and our accomplishments and our cliches. But it gets burned up when life gets hot. Grace is greater than that. You see, instead of bowing out, you need to press in. You need to penetrate through the barrier of idolatry. And you need to plant the root of grace deeper for devotion to grow at a deeper place in you. I'm not telling you just to do more. That's Satan saying, oh, you better watch out. You better hold your pocketbook and you better hold your calendar. He's wanting you to do more. No, friends, I'm not just telling you to do more. I'm telling you to dig deeper. To find your true devotion and make sure the root of God's grace runs deepest in your heart and is leading you and is managing you and is growing greater devotion for Jesus down deep in you. Sometimes we learn in serving that we're more devoted to doing even than to being devoted to the one for whom our good deeds are done. This is what happened with Martha when Mary and Martha were at the heart of Jesus. And Martha said, Lord, aren't you going to tell Mary to get up and do something? And Jesus didn't say, Martha, your doing is wrong. But what did she say? Or what did he say? He said, she's chosen the greater. You see, doing isn't always the greater path for us. But it's never not a path for us. And all doing should ultimately grow greater devotion within us. I fear too often we're more devoted to doing good for other things than for the one who is most worthy of them. Struggles in serving and struggles in devotion are not a sign to stop doing good works, friends but to press into the gospel and to shift our devotion from where it is to Jesus. Doing is easier than devotion, but it makes a terrible substitute for it. So let your serving serve a greater purpose of growing and of maturing you. Let the gospel work in you while you work to serve by striving to know and to to make Jesus known. Consider your affections. Consider your attitudes while you're serving. Consider your disposition towards other people as well as your strengths and successes and your faults and weaknesses and serving. And ask yourself this, where the fruit of the Spirit doesn't increase through my serving, I need to apply the gospel. I need to repent because sin is ruling me at that point sin is managing me sin is leading me and not grace and then through repentance shift from where we are to where Christ is leading us so that the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness long suffering all of those fruits that the spirit grows and all of them together as one fruit 
can be maturing us from within. You see, serving serves a greater purpose for your life when doing grows devotion. Serving serves a greater purpose for your life when doing grows devotion. That's a critical perspective for us to hold. The third perspective I want to offer to you today very quickly is simply this. Urgent needs deserve priority. Urgent needs deserve priority. Not everything always gets the same priority in serving. Why is this? Because life changes, does it not? Ministry helps people by serving to meet needs. That's what you've got to remember. Ministry means meeting needs. And so devoted to good works means that we're ready to help when others are in need. If you're going to do this, you've got to build margin into your life. You've got to have the margin of time. You've got to have the margin of money. You've got to have the margin of energy. You've got to have a margin in your focus. But you've got to have margin if you're going to be ready when urgent needs arise. You don't just find something that you can do and only do that thing, but rather prepare to help people that you find when they are in need by addressing their need as best you can and in any way that you can. It may not be your wheelhouse of serving, but you can do something. And sometimes God uses our biggest weaknesses and abilities to grow the greatest grace in our devotion. Let me talk to you a little about classifying urgency with some funny stories. I won't take too long on this, but we had only been going about a year as a church when Hurricane Katrina hit. And as a church, there really became a groundswell. We need to do something to help them. And so some of the people in our church began to collect goods, mostly water. And as a church of not even 150 people at that point, we filled a race car tractor trailer rig. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a massive tractor trailer rig that has an underbelly. We filled it so full of, 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 D, of goods excuse me, that had been donated that we'd gone around the city and got donated. It almost couldn't make it up the hill on Highway 60 by Highland Springs. The tractor trailer almost didn't pull it up the hill, but it took them... Uh, uh, but, but they took those goods all the way uh, to um, South Louisiana or as far as they were able to get. They couldn't get into the city because of the hurricane damage. We sent another 32-foot covered trailer and almost didn't recover the three men that took it. I'm not kidding. We so overloaded that thing with pallets of water, they had to replace six tires before they got to West Plains. It was like eight or ten tires and three wheels. Like, that's the part that holds the tire. It's just so stinking heavy. I mean, that's where the story really goes awry and gets kind of funny for those of us that weren't on the story. But I, I won't get into that. It might rekindle some things. Why? It was an urgent need, and we could do something. We couldn't do everything, but we could do something, and we did. Let me tell you about some ongoing needs. The poor and the needy in our region are all around us, and, and Galatians 4 is very clear. We're not to forget the poor. Those who find themselves in need. And so Christians stand ready to address poverty with the priority of urgency because people should not be without basic life necessities. Listen, friends, I, I know sometimes we look at those who are impoverished and we go, you know, I bet some stupidity got them there. And let me just tell you how anti-gospel that really is. And, and listen, I, I'm not absent from having believed or thought that at times. But let me just say this, if you see me and my family in need of basic life necessities, I don't care if I'm hungry or not. If my children are hungry, 
if they're naked or if they're cold. I don't care what got me there. Please help. Yes. Do you feel that way about you? Yeah. And why would we go, well, you know, if you weren't so dumb, you might not have got where you are. Well, that's true of me. God doesn't say you need to figure out what got them where they are and then see if you need to help them. The third is rising needs. The very piece that I gave to you with International Justice Mission today, human trafficking. And I, I, I ask myself, how could a need like this that's so broad or widespread, how could it rise so quickly? I don't know. But I'm not commanded to figure out what and whether it's a real problem or not. You know, there are people all over the city who still deny it's a problem, even though the statistics are staggering. But for us, the urgency of need creates a priority for us to address it. And that's what we need to be about. That's the third perspective we need to hold. The final perspective that we need to hold is this. Avoid unfruitfulness in your life. You need to avoid unfruitfulness in your life. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so that they're ready to help an urgent crisis and not be unfruitful. God works to accomplish His mission by maturing His people in grace through service. We need to regularly assess and evaluate our lives to see if there's any fruit in us. Every season is not the same and every season will not be a harvest for us. There are some seasons in our life when we have to do nothing more than the tedious work of preparing the soil of the heart. There are other seasons in our life when we plant seeds of learning and of understanding so that we might strengthen our lives and strengthen our hearts and prepare for service. There are even seasons where we do nothing more than tend the seeds that we've already planted. And in many respects, it feels like we just wait for growth. But the point is that all of these in the Christian life are fruitful seasons. We don't have to figure out the season, but in every season, we must give ourselves to the work of cultivating that continues to produce Christ-likeness in us. And Christians learn to devote themselves to good deeds in order to labor and to bear fruit. You see, laziness in the Christian life is just simply sin. But most Christians that I know don't struggle with laziness in life. They struggle with busyness. And busyness is a greater cause of unfruitfulness than laziness. But busyness that causes unfruitfulness is as sinful as laziness. Unfruitfulness is sin no matter what the cause. God created us and He's redeemed us to, to bear spiritual fruit through good works that glorify Him. And when we fail to bear fruit, regardless of the season that we are in, we make one grand claim, God messed up. God messed up. So when you see no fruit in your life, friends, I'm going to tell you, stop. Drop and roll. No, I'm kidding. You need to stop. You need to ask why. Not why me. Why? That's a question God loves to answer. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit as He speaks to you through the Word of God in your own devotion time, in study, and in preaching. And you need to trust what God is saying, and you need to obey whether you understand or not. 
The gospel grows grace-fueled devotion for godly living in a godly age. And here's what I want you to understand as we bring this to a close today. That we labor to hear one thing. And it is simply this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. Avoiding unfruitfulness in life is critical for us. And so as the worship team returns, I want to ask you to give thought to one question. What's keeping you from bearing fruit in your life? What's preventing fruit from growing? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Let me pray for us. God, you've shown us some amazing, amazing truths in your word. You've confronted so many of the fallacies that we bought into today that the church is old hat and she's washed up and no good. That Christianity is all about me and individuality and what I want, what you want for me. And it's just all about me and you, God. The problem is that doesn't align with your word at all. For when you save us, you save us to a people. A people who've been given to a purpose, a mission. Accomplishing and serving your kingdom in this world. And our struggle there is that the world has so many competing priorities and so many competing things that are promises that are offered to us that it's just so easy to get distracted, God. And those distractions cloud our thinking, they cloud our feeling, they cloud our understanding, they cloud our perceptions, they they cloud our actions. And they cause us to believe when your word confronts us that we or the world know better than you do. But God, the world didn't appear to us, you did. The world doesn't change us. You do. So God, as we look at our hearts and our lives today, and we look at the fruitfulness that our life is bearing or is absent in our life, God, I pray first of all that you would guard us from the condemnation of the evil one that would not help us in evaluation. But in remembering what you have done, that you've come to us, that you've saved us. And in that salvation, you are working and living in us that we might live out of that life. And that living it out might look like good works that that don't just condemn us, don't just drain us, don't just bring us to the end of ourself. But at the end of ourself, grow a deeper devotion and a love for you that help us, God. In this transformation of becoming more like Jesus. That the world might see the one who has appeared to us has appeared to them. And will save them just as you've saved us. So God help us today by your Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts. Holy Spirit I just ask that you would speak to each heart here today as I know you're already doing. With pinpoint accuracy. 
Convict us of sin and where we have walked away from you, Lord. Convict us of righteousness and where you are wanting us to join you and to walk with you. And convict us of the urgency. Today is the day because today is the day we've heard. Help us to turn even today.